Hey there, my name is Mark McCartney and welcome to the What is a Good Life podcast. Over the last two years, I've interviewed over 170 people around this question, not to provide you with the universal answer, but to help you to find and define your own answer to this question. On the 46th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast, I'm delighted to introduce Dave Zabowski as our guest. Dave is a classically trained painter, was an animator at Disney, Sony and Warner Brothers, has showcased his fine art at galleries internationally and has painted for the Dalai Lama. While his work includes timeless films like Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, Aladdin, he has also illustrated several acclaimed children's books. In this episode, Dave discusses why attention is our most valuable commodity and discusses the connection between love, attention, creativity and interdependence. We also explore the role of acknowledging and processing grief and its importance in creating something new and moving on from anger. Dave also delves into the immense power of storytelling and touches on the collective shifts we can accomplish through them. He also points to the universal laws of creativity and what we can extrapolate from them regarding life. If your life is lacking some spark, if you are feeling frustrated or even angry about not expressing your potential, this episode will give you plenty to contemplate. Dave is a force of loving nature, and I suspect after listening to him for an hour, you'll love and appreciate life a little bit more and feel inspired to take some action. Out of all the people that I've interviewed, very few people radiate their message and embody it so much as Dave does in terms of creativity, love and attention. And so I took a hell of a lot from this conversation, as I'm sure you will too. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share and subscribe. And if you're on the podcasting platforms, please leave a review, as I greatly appreciate your support at this stage of my podcasting journey. So without further ado, the 46th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. Dave... Thank you very much for joining me here on the What is a Good Life podcast today. As I told you in our little pre-chat there, I've been following your work for some time on LinkedIn, also discussing this uh, this Lexus video of yours which um, in which you were gifting one of your paintings. Um, I find you to be someone who is wholeheartedly showing up to life, so I was, I was really excited to talk to you today. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. I'm delighted to be here, and I, you know, thank you for the kind words. That's a really lovely reflection. So Dave, the first question I have is, is there a question you're trying to answer as you as you move through life? Right. So just that super simple. Yeah. Let's get started with an easy one. <laughs> uh, right. Is there a question I am trying to answer or answering with my life? Um, yeah, I think uh, it, it's sort of twofold. What is love? And how close to it can we come? You know, I think that there is a, uh, well, you know, kind of what we were saying just in our little pre-chat there. Um, you know, we are unbelievably privileged. The wild improbability of our being here in this moment, not just from a standpoint of the physiology of having that one sperm choose the choice that it made, but the, just the near misses in the accidental being that we're actually here right now, like that ridiculous improbability should wake us up to the undeniable, extraordinary preciousness of every second. And our kind of uh, our own divinity or access to it. That's why I'm so um, deep in the idea of creativity and what is creativity, because I do think that it is our opportunity to, to emulate the divine, to, to find a, 
um, a kind of cohabitation or a sort of um, a coherence, a connection to uh, the, the thing that makes everything, you know, like we sort of um, our kids playing with clay to mimic the grown-ups, which is the divine around us. So I don't know with my life, what am I trying to, what am I trying to answer? I think it's, um, yeah, what has love got to do with it? <laughs> Tina Turner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I resisted the urge to, to break into song. And, yeah. and Dave, just when did this, was this always something that you were curious about? And, and even just the, the question of like, what is, it, what is love like in terms of, is there like an essence to the, the quality of it, the essence of it, the way it's expressed or displayed amongst people? Yeah, you know, I think that, um, look at our attention is the most valuable thing in the universe, what we pay attention to. You know, there are companies, they will spend billions of dollars on getting your attention on things. That attention is access to the miraculous. You know, we are gifted with this ability to, to pay attention, to actually pay attention. And the cost of that is, you know, hopefully... Uh, the ledger is, you know, greater, you, you know, you want to get a good deal on the things that you pay for. Right. And so the, I think that for me, I've done a universe of drawing in my life. I have, I have found that that capacity to sort of pay attention, capture it, transmute it into an act of expression is how I connect to the world. Um, you know, and maybe it's partly that I'm afraid of dying. So I want to keep creating, but it also is my opportunity to use my greatest gift from the infinite to be able to focus it on something that's worthwhile. What am I paying attention to? So I think that that sort of leads to my, you know, uh, experience of the world. What do I pay attention to? How broadly can I open my aperture? Can I feel the landscape as I move through it? Can I, you know, feel you as we have a conversation this is a thought i've been having a lot recently this idea of um attention is literally our, our most precious gift that we can give to anyone and and even in terms of whether it's because i think usually when we think of love we might even just think of like family or partner or children something like this but i've been finding more in my life the more deeply i pay attention uh, in conversations and in interactions with people, the more love I feel in myself. Like the, it's like the 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 more attention we pay, and the more preciously we treat that. I think the more of the more like we become like a vessel for this expression of of some some greater connection within us or something. Whether it's even beyond even human relationships you know you were talking about even just like the the vast infinite like the universe before and and something i've read of yours and and i don't know there's i find that like i find that one of to be one of the saddest things at the moment is where we're putting that a, a, attention um in terms of you know you're saying companies are paying billions of dollars for us maybe to use certain tools when you when you think of then like this is your form, uh, your expression of this love or this attention then is what you create. Is is there a kind of an inherent connection then between creativity and, and love for you then? Well, 
Yeah, absolutely. But if if you think about it, and maybe we open our aperture up a little bit to to some um, some currents that we can find ourselves in. But one of them, for example, is you know I um, I am on a path to mastery. That's my mission is to master this craft. And the craft is not just the outward expression or the physical things that I make, but the conduit that I am for beauty and love and trust and tension and whatever the subject is. So that I, you know, I had this great teacher who said, it is not something that you do. It is something that you be. You can't do it. You can't do it. Nice. Right. Like you, you conduit, you become a conduit for it. That's my terrible Indian accent. <laughs> but the idea is that um, uh, any master of any discipline, whatever that may be, a martial art or a physical art or dance or flower arrangement, they're a master because love is present. And so it has to be part of the mechanism that allows for you to input data and output your expression and your mastery. So the first thing is that love is part of it. The second is that I, I listen for these currents. And, you know, you mentioned that like in our time, things are challenging. But I think if you look at the currents, and this is what I mean by maybe opening up our aperture a little bit. But I think that, you know, you talk, we talk, and I'm sort of deep in this business. I'm running a startup right now. I'm co-founding a startup and I'm, I'm, uh, experiencing a lot of sort of, you know, late stage capitalism and, you know, the Western view of things and artificial intelligence or machine learning and things like that. But I think if we think about the, like opening up that aperture, we are in an age now of interdependence. And I think that there's something really exciting about that. This idea that we are interconnected, you know, we are evolving consciousness. We evolve it through our stories and our expressions and the, the things we, the acts we take day to day, where our attention is put is uh, part of our evolutionary process. And so if you look at where we are now, you can see it in the stories that are being told where we had heroes that are now collective teams, you know, from the hero's journey to the kindred quest. We're in this place now where I think that we're in an age of interdependence. We have borders, but we also have uh, our, like our sovereignty and our sovereignty leans up against something. Somebody can leave a window open in Wuhan or they have some event happens in, in Israel and we know about it instantly. And if we're honest, it does affect us. It affects us emotionally because we know those are other humans over there that this stuff is happening to. And I think that the thing that's exciting for me is that if we can kind of recognize that and move through, you know, you've had a um, someone on emotional intelligence, you know, if we can kind of find our emotional intelligence, then we can recognize our interdependence. And I think that that's where our real advances are going to come from. And within that, then, what do you, what do you see, Dave, as, as, uh, as contributing to, to that, like cultivating that awareness or that, that consciousness of almost the the opportunity that that kind of simultaneously coexists with maybe some of the, the heavier things that people are, are that they're also their attention is also being drawn to. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that there is an, an optimism because we are in a time that there is more freedom for more people on Earth 
percentage-wise, not just numbers, than there ever has been. More people have access to education and technology and resources, and there's a lot of blockers out there. So from a sort of logistical standpoint, all of those things are exciting. But I think from an emotional standpoint, I mean, you know, to, to be straight, the one thing that we are not very good at is grief. And I think that that when we can really address our grief and not the grief of just having lost somebody, which is pretty clear and, and, and evident, but the grief of having lost possibility, like when we have been promised or feel like we've been promised something, that grief that that promise that wasn't fulfilled, that grief that, oh, I wish I were in a better place or the grief of, of, um, you know, l losing potential of lost potential. So I think when we can really feel into our own grief, then that allows us some access to some things that will open us up to our interconnectedness, like gratitude. If we can process grief in such a way that we can accept it, feel it, understand it, recognize it, you know, go through Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's, you know, five stages to where we, you know, we deny it, we fight against it, and then we eventually accept it. In that acceptance, there's love. And in that space, there's the potential to be grateful, grateful for the lessons, grateful for the opportunity to have had a glimpse of something beautiful. And that gratitude is a kind of ground floor upon which we can build a future. You can't build it on the rubble of grief. You have to get past that. And so, yeah, I think that that's, that's a real trick for us in our time, for us to be able to collectively process grief, especially in America. You know, you have these kind of middle-aged white guys who've been promised a fish in every pot and that promise didn't fulfill itself, that they would have businesses, that they would have a, an ability to be better off than their parents were, and they aren't. So there's a lot of, of unprocessed grief that leads to anger, and that anger is a blocker for them to get to that emotional ground floor where they can build on top of gratitude. If you build on grief and you build on anger, it's just a bunch of rubble that falls over eventually. I think that's absolutely beautifully said. I, I think that there's something, the idea that we have around grief and, and look, there can be almost the, the ultimate idea or association we have with grief with the, the passing or some of our own mortality. But I really like this idea, almost like the, the passing of moments. And, it, and it's not to say that we get um, kind of, I don't know, railroaded uh, or, you know, kind of blindsided when we just acknowledge that something has passed but even i've recently become a father and i see my my baby just of three months and i see there's certain stages now that just that have just passed and i was i felt fully present for them while they were there i felt i feel in deep gratitude for it but it is a kind of like wow it's, it's only been three months and all this change has happened you know and and it's not to say that leaves me in a state of mourning or or even that my relationship with my wife is somehow it's still a beautiful thing but it has changed there's a phase that is that is over and a new phase has begun and i and i don't i think we're so reticent to just 
just explore those things a little bit, like express from that place um, or even process it collectively in a moment. Like sometimes I think when we're dealing with grief or sorrow or loss, maybe we go off to see it and I'm not knocking seeing a therapist. I've seen a therapist myself, but I just mean that it's, we kind of go into darker corners and explore some of these things, but maybe not so collectively. And you know, not even just the fact that you were saying there of that grief can be, you know, we're not going to build something on the rubble of grief. It's something we move through, but almost like that, that can be a, the collective experience of it because it's, it's everywhere. Um, that that can be something that kind of, that almost brings us together as well. And just the expression or the sharing of that experience. Yeah. You know, I, I think that we, and especially guys, men, you know, yeah. we think about grief as, uh, you know, like man up, you know, like everybody loses something. Um, you know, we, we, we also don't have a real dimensional view of grief. It either is death or nothing, right? So like yeah. you can grieve death and then, wow, that was a drag, <laughs> put it behind you and move on. Everything dies. But I think that other grief that, that I'm talking about that is actually cultural grief, the grief that you're talking about, about the past that was, you know, there was a beauty in the moment that's now gone. You know, it's the it's not the grief of death. It's the grief of of, um, I don't know, past potential. And uh, that's the thing that I think becomes, uh, you know, kind of putrefying that that. Uh, we tend to stop at anger. Like, I'm just pissed that I didn't get that thing that was promised to me, right? Whatever it is, from a political standpoint, a cultural standpoint, a work standpoint, an ice cream cone standpoint, I'm pissed that I didn't get what I believed I was promised, right? Now, that's a grief that's mutated into anger because that anger protects us. It gives a shell. It casts a kind of blame or recrimination. It's not my responsibility because I'm a victim. And that victimness gives me permission from somewhere to have anger. And that anger blocks me from being able to build a future on it because it wasn't my fault. I'm not responsible. But, you know, man, this is your life. You pay attention. That cost of attention is the ledger that your life is measured by. And so did you miss something? Is there some place where you might be able to take some responsibility? And I know that there are places where that's not accurate. And so what we have to figure out how to do is forgive ourselves for missing something, forgive ourselves for the grief that happens that, you know, that we find ourselves in a position that, um, le left us with some challenges, but that anger is the blocker and finding a way to transmute that anger into some kind of sadness or grief allows for us to be able to process it and move it. It's very difficult to just process anger into gratitude. It's a hard yeah. step, right? You know, it's just got to go through blame and recrimination and lack of responsibility. And so when we can be a little bit more emotionally mature about it, recognize, damn, really, really wanted that. And I'm not going to have it. So I grieve that it makes me sad. What now is possible to create 
I'm grateful for the opportunity to have, have glimpsed that. And can my life be iterations so that I uh, work more towards something that feels qualitatively like that feeling that I was hoping for, right? So, you know, I was an animator at Disney Studios. Um, I got an internship there that um, changed my life. They were hiring two or three people a year at the time, and I got a spot, and it was amazing. But when I was in art school, it took me three times to get to the internship place. Like, I didn't make it the first couple of times. And so can you use that grief and transmute it? What's the the mechanisms of attention and grief and emotionality and, you know, that ability to to say, all right, awesome, this didn't work, but I will not be stopped. And those are those are human qualities and 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 practices that you can get to when you get to your sadness or your grief, but you can't get to them when you stop at anger. It just doesn't get you to that iterative place where you can rebuild something that that is, you know, better and won't fall over. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes absolute sense. Uh, I love I love this uh, this um, this sentiment of there's almost, it almost feels like there's this pent up energy that's going in the direction of anger, and sometimes I see whether it's even just like let's just say an overly I don't know if people want to bypass stages in the process to get to a more positive or grateful outlook in life. Like just saying you're grateful for five things or writing five things down every morning when you haven't gone through a loop moving you from anger to anywhere else. I, I think it's it misses so much in the process and there's so much kind of richness and opportunity. And as you say, like lessons in that process and moving through these stages. But you've mentioned a, you've mentioned a word a couple of times, which I think ties into this as well. In, in almost using this process and towards potential. What does, what does that sense of potential for you in, in this process, how does, how does that show up? Well, yeah, I mean, we humans are magnificent instruments. You know, something you're saying reminds me like B.B. King, one of the great guitarists of all time, so who am I to argue, said, you know, I just took my sadness and turned it into the blues. <laughs> you know, I took everything that was bothering me and turned it into blues. I'm paraphrased. Y'all out there can look up the actual quote, but it's something like that, you know, that that is that I transmuted this energy of destitution, this energy of loss or failure or whatever that you want to call it. That is the unbelievable, magical power of this human experience. And human potential is the the process of pushing past your growth edges to that something new that gives you a different view of the horizon. And I, you know, you can't go three steps past your growth edge. It's really hard, but you can lean up against that growth edge and just know that that's enough. And human potential is the, you know, um, the, I don't know, the sort of perfected possibility of being human. You know, we create. When we create, we invite the perfection that lives on the other side of the membrane between what is and what's potentially possible, right? And so everything that I create, I have this sort of imagination that like, um, I want to create something. I want to turn a thought into a thing. And so 
here I create a sort of meditation and a communication that communicates past that membrane between the what is real and the infinite potentiality, that thing in its perfected form up there beyond the screen here, you know, that, um, <laughs> that, that is the, my imagination perfectly formed, right? And then my job as a creator is to be able to coax that thing past that membrane with as much perfection as it possibly can so that when it lands in reality, it looks as close to what it was in that potential as possible. And so humans, I think, are the same. And our job is to do our best to express our potential um, as closely as possible that, you know, that is sort of mandated by the divine. Don't be a dick, be a good person, right? <laughs> and so, so what does that potential look like? You know, and, and I think that that's the story we continue, continually tell ourselves. And, you know, sometimes we get in the way of it and sometimes we, you know, we manifest it um, through practices that allow for us to, to continually communicate to that potentiality. And so, you know, when we miss, there's also some grief. And so understanding that gives us a chance to kind of like reset and, and, and reapproach it. That's iteration is a universal law of creativity. If we're angry or we block ourselves, we have self-talk, we prevent ourselves from iterating towards that, um, that potentiality. You know, there's uh, just, by the way, when you mentioned that B.B. King thing, uh, quote, um, my sister recently sent me a poem uh, from Leonard Cohn that I forget the exact uh, name of it, but the sentiment was, this grief was keeping me up in the middle of the night instead of turning to, to booze and distraction. I, I wrote it down for people that could relate to it when they're in the same moment as I am. And I, I, I know there's just uh, going back even to that idea again of like connection, potential, um, mm -hmm. grief, mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and interconnectedness of, of how we can create in these moments. I, I think it's a really beautiful sentiment. The other thing, just when you're, well, oh, sorry, go on. Well, I, I want to I offer just a, um, um, uh, a little focus on an optic. Human potential doesn't mean me wearing a cape and saving kittens from trees. It doesn't mean, mean me being um, a superhuman. It means me being as connected to myself as I possibly can in this moment. That's what I mean by like a growth edge. So uh, my, my perfected being is I'm also, you know, angry at something until I can transmute it into some other thing. I smell bad. Sometimes my hair is a mess. I don't like all of those things. It's not, doesn't mean that, that like perfection, I think is not the perfect vase. It, it's the perfection is me being, um, fully in acceptance of who I am today. Uh, and absolutely. that, I think, is where a self-love comes in. Absolutely. And, and as someone who hasn't showered today, that's uh, very gratifying to hear that you can. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but with this, I, but I think that sense of, I, I think anyway, like the high point, um, let's say I mentioned even before in conversations, I think the high point of a conversation is for me, when I feel I'm in almost direct contact with the present moment. So that's both with another human being and listening and paying attention 
Um, and then also for me to be aware of how I'm feeling in the in in the moment itself. And it's a whole plethora of different things playing out without me ticking box ticking to say that I'm doing all these things. It's just in this beautiful, perfect state. And as you say, that may even involve me being aware that I'm judging the other person in a moment, even though I feel extremely connected. And then simultaneously processing that judgment um, and and coming back to the moments like there's it's it's not always like just perfect um, synchronicity or flow of pleasantness if you if you understand but I, but I think the really interesting thing in so much of this is can we get comfortable with ourselves in whatever is coming up in the moment can we accept it and allow it to have space to even just let it pass you know I think that there's so much even what you were talking about in terms of the anger initially. There's so much resist, like when we demonize a part of ourselves or we're not accepting ourselves, it's it's so difficult then to actually create some of this space for the perfected version of ourselves and not being perfected in terms of external metrics. I just mean being mm. as much ourselves as we, as we can in, in, in any moment or even just to, allowing it to exist, appreciating the the transient nature of things sometimes and, and, and all that comes with it. Right. Well, that's, that's attention. Like, like, how are you using your attention? There's a great principle that goes back 2000 years to, uh, it's called Nothi Seyuton. That is know thyself, right? And not just know yourself, but know the thy in thou. Know that there is this like divine in there. But I'll tell you, Mark, I'd ask you, I mean, you've interviewed all of these people. They're all dropping all kinds of wisdom. What are you looking to answer? What, 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 like you must have gained some really amazing insights from all of these incredible conversations. What drives you for this? Um, what, what drives me for this is it really is to inspire people's own self-reflection. Like it's to see that everyone that I talk to has some sort of different answer, that there's some sort of nuance to it. Um, and then it, it's also really just to have, like, to give an example of a conversation where two people that I've never have met can actually drop into a conversation with depth that they could feel connected from different parts of the world and that we could say what we think and feel and in the moment. It's like to, a bit like your teacher, I'm, I'm trying to be the thing, like not trying to be the thing that I am, but the doing and the being or the trying, it, it all seems to kind of merge for me when I'm when I'm chatting to people about like what, about any kind of self-reflection or um, the thing I've noticed is like I've, I left behind a career in finance. I've thrown myself into a lot of uncertainty in life. I, I had no idea what I was doing when I left the job. Um, as I mentioned to you, I had it off for a year into South America. At no point really had I had a clear sense of what it is. I just knew that I was insanely curious and 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 a curiosity that I think had been dulled and and pushed away. Hmm. So really when I started this, it wasn't with a fixed point of ah, this will get me to here. It was like mm-hmm. I was kind of I felt a little bit suffocated by the ideas of making clear plans of what was going to come next. I I I I don't know, I, I want to have conversations with people where they kind of see the reality of what someone's process is as well, and that it's mm. not this 
linear line of external um, consistent consistency all the time and perfect you know perfect processes that life is a little bit messy that there's lots of paradox in life if you think about it a little bit more and also I, I don't know what you're I know you've touched on divinity and and um, being expressions of that or, or God um, I kind of think it's a little bit sad that notions or like God doesn't come up very often in a lot of conversations I had maybe prior to seven or eight years ago or an essence or a sense of divinity and while I'm not trying to press uh, push a message of divinity I, I'm just find it a bit sad that some of the wonder from life has has ceased to exist like whatever your interpretation of life whether it's the big bang or god created the world in seven days or maybe you believe in science and god and and or maybe you don't believe in god and something that has set up uh, religions in their name and and things like this whatever it is or you believe in a multiverse i find it incredible some of the answers that we have no you know some people just have no real opinion on and then i don't know some of this the nonsense we concern ourselves with, whether it's just i don't know what a late, the latest celebrity did or just even the gossip we share in our own lives without reflecting on some of our own stuff before we look to, to stick our noses in other people's business. So I'm not answering your question very clearly, but it was a whole mixture of all of these. And it was re- really just, a, I, I don't know, really to provide a, a platform just to discuss some of these themes, which I think for me, as I dive further into them myself, even though I don't have a clear, um, finite answer to them, I don't even think that's the point anymore. But my life becomes inherently better by exploring them. Like it can mm-hmm. be, in it can be a a comfort with uncertainty, even while it's uncomfortable. You, you know what I mean? Like it, it can be a, a a tolerance for not knowing the answer. It can be entering into a conversation without trying to win. It, it can be. I don't know, the, the biggest lesson that I've learned over the last decade for myself, which has started with the whole line of different self-inquiries, is just, it really, like, it's almost like your question, what is love? Like, there's a, a depth and a quality of relating, which I think is is what makes me so optimistic about humans and the future, is because I think we're we're tapping into what's possible from our relationships or our points of connection with other people it's we're tapping into it maybe five percent of the way as far as i maybe that's okay that's way too low but i just mean with the infinite like possibility of what's what's what we're capable of in terms of connection and what we can derive from our relationships maybe five percent is way too low but (laughs) i i just mean like that there's there seems to me something limitless which i never appreciated before and 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 I guess sharing moments like that with other people in their own lines of inquiry is what 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 spurred me on to do this. Right, nice. And I, you know, my, I use the term divinity, and I have a loose interpretation of it. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean religion or God. It could mean consciousness. It could mean just freaking magic. I mean, think about this: the universe erupted into being say 14 billion years ago, we do some work with JPL and there's some evidence that maybe it was more like 26 billion years ago. Regardless, it's multiple billions of years ago. And the general understanding of it at this point is that there was something that caused a big bang, some emergence. Everybody's heard that term. Basically, it is the moment that the universe started. All of this material 
exploded into being and raced for the corners of the infinite. But I mean, like, all right, cool. You know, there's this famous say, saying that says, you know, science says, uh, give us one act of magic and then we'll take it from there. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what happened in the instant before the Big Bang? Was there, like, there's no, you know, as soon as the Big Bang, now you have physics and science and you have all of these things happening. Um, uh, you know, temporal di disruptions, time, space, gravity. But what happened in the moment before? And there are lots of unknowns that we um, sort of don't even really address, like gravity, for example. Gravity is sort of time and space or time space, but there's no graviton. You can't point a thing and shoot gravity at something. I can drop this and it, it we can predict what happens to it, but not why. There's no real understanding that is, uh, you know, consensus on something that's just so prevalent. And I would say the same thing about love. And maybe I have a theory that love and gravity are similar, just different vibrations of the same thing. So who's to say that it's not? There are enough mysteries in the world that I think that any certainty about anything that's bigger than a collective mind or a single mind is just speculation. And you can have it if it helps you really get predictable results, which is what most ritual is designed for. Um, and knock yourself out, be my guest. I think that that's the space that we're challenged by is in an inter interdependent world. Um, how do we explain the unexplainable? How do we live to accept it? You know, material realism is part of the story, but not all of it. So for example, you know, you can have emergent properties, things that are unpredictable, um, uh, expressions of things that we um, had predictable expressions of. For example, you take a single bar. If I take just this little bar, um, it's just a bar. But if I put a whole bunch of them together, then I have the, the property of containment. That's an emergent property that happens when I have a collective of a certain amount of things. Now, you can't just look at this and predict the property of containment out of the blue. You know, you've seen it now and now you could, but that's the that's the thing about emergent properties. When a bunch of things come together, there's an emergence that's an unpredictable, greater than the sum of its parts possibility. And that, I think, is super exciting when you think about the complexities of humans. We are a collective of emergent properties. If we could just get our shit together, accept the divergent views that people pay attention to in ways that allow us to be able to find that acceptance, which we've established earlier has a little bit of love connected to it, then there's an emergent property that could be possible for human potential to exceed our wildest imaginings. And we see it in places, enlightened beings, in the idea that, you know, you think of somebody and then they call you. There are, there are um, energies that rain down from the heavens. We, our bodies receive one ten trillionth of all the radiation that's coming down on us right now. This call that you're watching is coming in on waves the telephone you know cell phone vibrations that you're not receiving what else 
is possible for you to receive that you're not receiving yet. And I think that that is something that's super exciting, this idea of emergent properties that are possible when a collective gets to a sort of critical mass and a catalyzing change happens that is qualitatively different than what came before. And that's what's possible with our attention and our human potential. If we can you know, process the gravel and, and, and shards, get to a level of gratitude for all life, and then build from there. Now, maybe that's a little Pollyannish, but it, it also uh, is, is possible. So, but in, in that then, your, your belief is that if enough, uh, if we get to a big enough critical mass, then it's almost like uh, there's a, 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 a comic book writer and, and also um, an author as well, uh, Alan Moore. Um, he, has a, he has this lovely idea in his documentary, uh, The Mindscape of Alan, um, Alan Moore, this uh, idea space. So it's kind of almost like I think what you're touching on that you're you're kind of channeling or you're the vessel for an idea to come from a non-material space into into a, a space here in this world and it's almost uh i don't know like thinking of if enough people get into a certain if it, into a particular mind space what could we then collectively channel as a as opposed to just what can one individual uh, individual cultivate from going to within a certain place within themselves? Well, right. I mean, great stories are are typically collective projects. Right. Few exceptions, but even for them to go out wildly, they tend to to ha get collaborated on. I mean, you can think about Lord of the Rings, epic, amazing story, and then there's these movies that make it even more widely acceptable as a story. That's a kindred quest story. Harry Potter, the Marvel movies, you know, um, it's not just an individual thought. It is the kindred quest that we can come together and imagine greater. And I point to stories because it is through story that any changes are made. And the question is, what story are we telling? Could we tell a story of what if it went well? You know, we create from our beliefs. We create from the stories we tell of the things that we believe. That's how we create. You know, people say, well, seeing is believing. I would argue that believing is seeing, that there's a great story from the philosopher Stephen West, and he says, imagine you find yourself in a, a dire situation, like you're being chased by a ravenous bear. Now, you probably can't outrun that bear. Now, in front of you, there's a chasm. If you can jump over this chasm, you'll escape the clutches of this hungry bear. If you don't believe it's possible, you won't try. And so the, the, the outcome of you landing on the other side does not exist in any realm of possibility because you don't believe it. And then it would be a bad day for you. Basically, it'd be a great day for the bear, but it'd be a really bad day for you. <laughs> now, if you had some belief, even the smallest belief, and you took the leap and the successful outcome happened, that successful outcome was only possible because belief was present. Belief becomes a non-trivial aspect to the actual realization of a reality, right? So that belief was a critical component to that reality manifesting. And so 
that's a story that we tell. Everything that's around you is there because somebody told a story about it. So we are responsible for the stories we tell and we live in our lives. What story are you going to tell? You know, we've been here on this planet. This planet's been here for, you know, this universe has been here for 14 billion years. About 4 billion years ago, there was this thing called Luca, the last universal common ancestor right? It was the point where we branched off and now we are here. We have mitochondria inside our cells that let, let our cells live longer. And we have all of this mishigas that we've created. Our humans, we've been here for, you know, life has been on this planet for 4 billion years. 100 million species have been on this planet. 10 million are here right now, but one species tells stories and that's us. So if you want to flex your one in a hundred billion species gift, man, use it to tell the stories of what if it went well. Use it to tell the stories about, about how, how you pay attention to things. Use it to tell the stories of a human potential that, that makes things work. Post-apocalyptic stories, man, they're a dime a dozen. They're super easy. But why? because we practice them, because we get used to the worst case scenario, because we have Terminator and all of these things here for entertainment. But can you tell the story of what if it went well? And that's the hard story to tell. That's, that's a shift in our human potential for us to believe that it could possibly go well. And I, I talk about AI all the time, and that's the story that I tell. What if it went well? What would we need to do to make things the way we believe human potential could actually be. I, th I think this is really fascinating in, in terms of, I don't know, just even what you're so passionate about, even in, in like uh, in creativity and the role that that can play in terms of opening, opening individuals up to our, our potential. In terms of a, a story for what if this went well, does that, I, I have a strange way of being optimistic in that I think I, I map my own individual process onto the macro and I think, well, if people suffer enough, they'll start to look for different solutions. Um, and in a way, I guess it kind of, that would map the idea of what you were saying earlier, going from anger through to grief and to pain and feeling your pain and, and, and coming out and, and processing that and coming out the other side of something is... Is the story that like that you think of for what if it went well for humanity? Does it start? I know you were mentioning there with paying attention. Is it there's obviously there's I don't know, I, I feel that there's love is inherent within us. Like I, I don't think that's really much of a a, a a debating point, if you know what I mean. I, I think that we see enough of that even if it's blocked in different ways. But what, how do you, how would you kind of tell the story of what if it went well? What would you be, what would you be looking for? Well, I mean, I think there's a ton of examples in the world already. You're Irish. And when I was younger in the 70s, it was a mess. Bobby Sands and Bloody Sunday, you know, I mean, like, you know, th there were some really trying times there. And it's not like that now. So what would you point to? to the shift that lets Ireland live in peace right now. You know, that was the Catholics and Protestants. There was the British, you know, influence on all of it. Like what's changed? 
And so I think that there are examples in the world that are real, that we now, because we're interconnected, we're interdependent, we can actually look at those. You, you can see in Israel, that shit doesn't work. You know, when you have the leader of, of Israel say, and I'm Jewish, but I'm not going to stand by a leader of any country who says we're going to enact a vengeance that will be felt for generations. And that that's just a failure of leadership. And that's what Netanyahu said. That's a quote. And so that's a failure of leadership. That's a failure of vision. And that's a failure of process. Like clearly, he actually wants something to continue because for 2000 years, that very same mentality has led us to having the same thing repeat over and over again. In Ireland, it's switched. You know, it's there. It's not that same environment anymore. I don't know what all the small machinations were, but I think we can look at those examples and see a really stark contrast and maybe learn a lesson from it. One of the things that we have to do is process our grief because there's no question that what Hamas did is unconscionable. How do we get over that? How do we find some way towards, you know, not annihilation? Right? Because we've clearly seen throughout history that any group that desires the annihilation of another is actually improving the odds of their own annihilation. And so yeah, how we started is we look at how we've done it well in the past, and then we extrapolate that. How do we do it well in the future? You know, truth and reconciliation in South Africa. You know, that that it's still kind of a mess down there now, but that that process was a really powerful healing process for that country. So, you know, we got a lot of work to do. But could you tell the story if it went well what would you look at you'd look at examples of where it did you create opportunities to either replicate those or advance them because we know more now than we did then what, what do you see is just from my from my own personal experience i found uh, just even with the processing of uh grief or, or pain i found creativity to be a stunning resource um, within that. I, I know obviously you're a, a huge proponent of, of creativity, but there is something, there's something that I find really, um, I find it a bit unfortunate the way we kind of think about creativity. Creativity is, you know, in school, even growing up, if someone's in art class, they're creative. Everyone else isn't creative. You know, I I, I must say like when I when I think of the, the things that could, stimulate new uh, new possibilities new opportunities like i don't know switching us more onto a, a creative path creative outlets even just as a play or expression in our lives it, it doesn't have to become your full gig it doesn't have to become anything more than just a, a private expression with yourself but uh, i i think even the simple act of journaling for example in my life even just to see words on a page then i could actually there's, I'm still emotionally attached, of course, but it's somewhat a little bit more objective. It gives me a little bit of space to see, to reflect on my own behavior. But then also just the sheer act of seeing words appear on a page makes me believe in the possibility of something new. Something is literally being created in front of my eyes as I observe. So I, I don't know, just in, in terms of your perspective, 
with creativity and in, 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 I know the, the very act of telling a new story is a creative act itself. Well, yeah, but it's also practices. So what you're talking about is a practice of transmuting an emotion through an expression into another form. And then from that form, does it need another transmutation? Does it need to go somewhere else? Right. And then you decide now this is just morning pages or this is my novel or this should be a sculpture or a podcast. And so uh, we transmute our emotions through creative practices. And I mentioned it a little bit earlier, and I can kind of just lay these out quickly, the idea that there are universal laws of creativity around which we can build practices that help us track a path to mastery. And just briefly, the universal laws of creativity are that creators believe. They believe what they're doing. Whatever it takes, whatever practices you need to believe in what you're doing. Telling stories is the best practice. It's a great way to, to believe in what you're up to. You tell a story, share the story, get other people to believe it. Um, uh, and then there's lots of tools inside of storytelling. So believe. The second is iteration. So creators iterate. They phase up their creativity and, pra and through practices, through phases. I didn't mention that not only did it take me three times to get into Disney, but I got a D plus in high school art, right? And so... <laughs> So that's like a happy D. I don't know what a D plus is, right? But it didn't stop me because I, I, whatever reason, had my samskara, the, whatever, the thing that came in me that, that, was, that needed to create. So I wasn't stopped by it. So we believe, we iterate, we collaborate. Any big idea that you have has, can't be done alone. Um, we learn how to plus by collaborating, how to be additive to each other. The fourth is risk. We learn how to risk in ways that engender trust. Every little small mark lets you make bigger marks. I use a pen sometimes when I'm drawing, and then when I go to pencil, it's so much easier because I've taken this risk. But you can extrapolate that out into, you know, asking for the raise or the date or taking a chance on telling a story about what if it went well or using your heart for your creative expression in places that take a risk. So risk is a universal law of creativity. It's a place where we can engender more trust. And then the last one is the creators complete. They finish strong. And when you finish strong and whatever those practices are that help you cross your T's and dot your I's and say, this I made, it's complete. Those completions help you tell a story that helps you believe, helps you and others believe more powerfully in your own creativity. So it kind of closes the circuit on this idea. So believe, iterate, collaborate, risk, and complete. And inside of those, there are practices that help you create in ways that you can build a path to mastery. And if you want to know more, I'm happy to share more about what some of those practices are. I've been cultivating a lot of them. And so, um, so that's sort of my kind of overview of how we can look at creativity like a technology, like a way to get replicable results. And it's not just a black box that belongs to that guy. I got a D plus in high school art and I didn't get stopped. I was an animator at Disney Studios. You know, what are your practices that help you create such that that's a, it's a kind of flame that you can put a hurricane lamp over and it won't get blown out? Because it is your birthright to be creative. It's your birthright to be able to manifest your ideas. And we have this one ridiculously preposterous 
opportunity at life to pay attention to things and build something beautiful. And um, yeah, I don't want to waste a second of it. I was I was thinking of just ending the podcast there, to be honest, because I usually I usually finish with the question of what is what is a good life for you, Dave? I'm conscious of the time that we're coming up to, but that was just absolutely glorious. Like there's I, I don't know, just even I just love, you know, when we we're talking about the possibility and belief and just it's almost summed up perfectly in the fact that you got a, a D plus in, in high school art and, and became an animator at Disney, like in terms of just, I, I don't know, just your life being the very living, um, the living proof, the living evidence of, of, of what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 You want to ask that question and you can put it before my last answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what, what is a good life for you, Dave? Yeah. Well, see the last five minutes. Um, yeah. What a good, a, a, a good life is, um, you know, figuring out a way to love every minute of it. You know, whatever it, means, it is. Yeah. Whatever it is it means petting my 11 year old bunny and listening to my dog snore in the background and, you know, just living in, in a, in a kind of acceptance for what is and a constant intention to create, um, from the inside out. Well, I'm, I'm glad that I still persisted with the question, because, uh, because <laughs> I, I, I don't know, just the, even the, the thoughts of that, like your 11 year old bunny or hearing your dog snore. I, I think there's just magic in in so many moments. I think there's so much magic in so many moments that we sometimes discount or don't even pay attention to. And I think once again, just the the act of paying attention, um, whether that's the connection between that, like us and love, whether that's the the stimulus for for creativity, uh, inspiration, belief, all of so many of these beautiful themes that you've been talking about, whether it's moving from anger and into grief, into transmuting that grief. Um, you've left me with a, a hell of a lot to, to contemplate, Dave. And um, I just want to really thank you for your time for this uh, this conversation today, sir. Yeah, Mark, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for for inviting me and, and for having this conversation. It was just really lovely. And I, I appreciate what you're creating in the world. Thank you.